I'm Mike Walsh, and you're listening to Between Worlds, the show that takes you over the horizon and beyond borders to bring you the global thinkers, innovators, and troublemakers whose ideas challenge the world as we know it. Here today with Jack Myers, who's been a, a, a long-time friend and uh, associate. Jack is well; he calls himself a media ecologist, but I, I think he's being quite humble about that because he's really the go-to guy that media companies and brands go to to understand what's happening with media and where it's going. I'm here today with Jack at the Rockefeller Center, and, and I'm glad you chose this place because uh, my earliest memory of New York when I was a child was being brought to see the Christmas tree. This is an iconic location. <laughs> it really is. And, and I was thinking back where we first met, and I realized that this is probably the most normal place we've hung out. Uh, we, we, we first, I think we first met in Mexico. Mexico. Uh, and we, were, we hung out in Oslo and Las Vegas. I put all those things in the same category. <laughs> well, I'm not sure Rockefeller Center can be considered normal, but we're continuing on our track. So, you know, Jack, I, I'm really excited to talk to you today because I, I feel like we're at this momentous time where everything we've spoken about in the last five to ten years about how media is changing consumer behavior is changing has really come to the point now where it's unstoppable and self-evident yeah Um, what are you seeing in the market now i mean you know with the upfronts and and how brands and, and and tv networks are responding how has the media consumer changed and what does that now mean well, you use the word change, and I, uh, that to me, that's too simplistic a word to describe what we're going through. We've been going; I've been, in you know, following uh, the media, marketing, advertising business for more than three decades, and there hasn't been a period where change hasn't been occurring, occurring fast, and where we haven't been very aware that we have to adapt to change. Different people, different companies adapt at different rates, and mostly too slow, slowly, but. Uh, the way I look at it, where transformation, transition, change uh, are not strong enough. I, I look at what we're going through right now as metamorphosis. It's, it's the caterpillar turning into the butterfly and, and leaving a lot of husks on the ground, um, dead bodies on the ground, but you don't know what's flying off and, and where we're going. And, and the challenge is becoming more and more difficult to figure out, all right, Here's where we've been. Here's where we are. Here's where we're going. And and uh, if if you look at it in a historic context, uh, transformational periods uh, like this, like the whether it's dating back to the Reformation or the the best analogy is the conversion from the agrarian age in the United States to the uh, to the industrial age, and it. Typically, that lasts about 30 years, and the first uh, half of that process is is the period when of the introduction of the new technology, and and uh, you know whether it was the automobile or the telephone or the telegraph or uh, radio, television, most of that occurred in in a pretty concentrated period of time, and then the second 15 years is about application implementation. And that's where you have your, your true transformation. And that 30-year period, typically right in the middle of that, there's a five to seven-year period where you really feel the impact and, right. and where there's the greatest amount of disruption. So if you and look at- And you think at, that's where we are now? 
we are there now. <laughs> uh, if you look at the beginning of this period as, as the in, uh, introduction of Mosaic, the, the internet browser, 1993-94, so we're 20 years in to this period of, if you want to think about it as a 30-year period, we're 20 years in, we're two decades into a three-decade process, so we're to, to reaching toward the, you know, toward the end of that middle five to seven year segment and we're really feeling the impact and I think the next three years or next three to five years is going to just be extraordinary disruption unlike any we've felt to date during this period of right. where the internet and, and uh, connectivity is just changing everything. So if you're a brand marketer or a network executive, what's sort of the bullet point list of the things that are keeping you awake at night? Besides, you know, there's cord cutting, there's people watching on YouTube celebrities rather than watching TV shows. What are other things that you're noticing that people are scared about? Uh, the loss of mass, the inability to reach masses of concentrated people. I, I remember a General Motors executive years ago said it was more efficient for him to, if, if four people are in the market for a new car, it's easier to reach a thousand people with network television to, and, to and include knowing that those four will be among them and then you have 996 extra impressions. Today everything's concentrating, let's find those four people, let's know them, let's inundate them, let's immerse them. and that should be generating um, a lot more, it, it should be a lot more expensive right. for those marketers. And they're in fact finding they're, they're increasingly able to find those four car buyers and they're able to find, get them cheap now. It's not his, his old adage that it was more expensive to find those four and to hit them than it was to just find, hit a thousand people. So there's this huge conversion based on data taking mm -hmm. place and there's an overabundance of data. You mentioned media ecology. My professor, uh, I, I majored in media ecology at NYU and my professor and mentor was Neil, Dr. Neil Postman who's a legendary thinker about the impact of media on, on, the, on society and culture and uh, communication and he said information has become a form of garbage, barely useful for performing the most fundamental task. And I think that's where we are. There's <laughs> so much data, so much information, but we're not getting any knowledge yet out of it. And we're not getting knowledge that we can actually, um, in, in the advertising business, that we can actually convert into some form of currency that can be measured. So what's keeping people awake at night is everything, the demands on marketers from their procurement and financial people are to drive down their costs of doing business. Hmm. Uh, to drive up their effectiveness in terms of sale and ostensibly the, the data is coming that can connect those two but the currencies are still outdated the currencies are still based on cost per thousand impressions on you know on, on incredibly outdated false metrics insights, basically false metrics I, I noticed I was around in the early days of the internet and everyone started talking about digital being more accountable but what they all what they actually did was just come up with a whole bunch of metrics from the old world, uh, you know, cost CPM, cost per click, exactly, and they measured the metrics and, <laughs> and rather have, than the results. And you have more audience targeting and behavioral targeting, and it's now being connected in the data cloud and marketing clouds right. with with purchase behavior and patterns. So there is a lot more data, but the the actual um, 
process of advertising, of media buying, the business models are still, they're, they're no different than they were 50 years ago. Everyone's talking now about programmatic marketing. Can you explain a little bit about what that is and, and what impact it's having? Programmatic is essentially putting all that data into, a, into the com computer, giving buyers and sellers access to that data, and then saying, all right, let's, let's uh, build our trends, let everyone put their inventory into a pool, and then the, so you have your demand side, here's what we're interested in buying, you have your supply side, putting all that inventory into a pool, and then the demand side, computer basically go in, goes in, sorts through and finds, all right, here, here's all the inventory that meets our goals, what's the cheapest? Right and then being able to buy in a real-time basis. So you're, you want to serve an ad today, you want to serve an ad two minutes from now, click here, here's the inventory that's available, you can serve the ad. So it's a real-time process of bidding, buy, sell, bid for media inventory. And it's heavily used in, in almost all digital today, increasingly in digital video. Um, so, so this is why you say, to some extent, these techniques are actually driving down the value of the inventory. Rather it's driving down the value of the inventory at the same time these four car buyers. At, at the same time as the amount of knowledge or information hmm. is enabling you to target more effectively but you're you're still there's so much inventory out there so video is where the biggest changes are taking place hmm. and you know we've already had our our shifts in transformation in print prints lost in 50% plus of its ad revenues. We're just beginning to see print making a, a slow stabilization. But video content, historically, you had supply and demand at about the same time. Um, and uh, at, at about the same level. You know, 10% here, 5% there, supply versus demand. And it's a supply and demand driven marketplace. Today, you have. Uh, for the first time you have supply consistently outpacing demand. And over the next de decade and beyond, we'll have quality video inventory where supply will be exceeding demand by about 15 to 20%. Right. So just as we're having this golden age of video of content, you know, the quality of television content, the quality of video content across all platforms is, is extraordinary. What what's your fate? What TV shows do you watch? Uh, I love you know everything from Game of Thrones to Mr. Robot. <laughs> Mr. Robot's hot. Mr. Robot's great. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so you know, and more and more of that is on commercial television, uh, whether it's FX in the U.S. or AMC or even the broadcast networks now are doing a lot more sustainable quality. And then you have HBO and Showtime, and then Amazon and Netflix and Hulu and YouTube beginning to invest in really high quality long form content. But the amount of advertising inventory that's being attached to that programming. Uh, Especially if it's being attached in real time on a bidding basis. And, and that's where the market TV market hasn't gone yet but will be forced to go. Right. And that's going to drive down pricing. And, and eventually drive down quality because you know if you're competing for the same person and you've got like PewDiePie on one stage who makes a video in five minutes and you've got Game of Thrones at what two million dollars an episode 
eight, nine, ten million dollars an episode. Right. Okay. Yeah. And yeah. then the economics don't pan out for Game of Thrones anymore, do they? And and right now Netflix, Amazon, others are, are doing deficit spending, so they're willing to lose money on that content, but they're not going to be able to continue doing that. So as the economics they're they're going to need new revenue models. The the broadcast cable networks are all their their advertising business is declining, so they have to find new revenue models. Digital is not making up the loss. More and more viewers are finding ways to avoid commercial. You've got ad blockers online. So, see, so what you're saying is that we're gonna in ten years' time we're gonna look back with nostalgia to the golden age of streaming. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, with buffering and yeah. Boy, no, no, but I mean of, of good of good stuff. Yeah, you know, like exactly. of high quality content on 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 the web. And the the interesting dynamic is what are the new business models right. because new business models have got to emerge and they will emerge so where's what you asked me what are marketers thinking about and what they're not thinking enough about in my opinion is where to use a hockey analogy where the puck is going as opposed to where it is and where it's been mm -hmm. their procurement people are keeping them up at night because they've got to find better ways to drive down their costs which means they're Media agencies are being put under enormous pressure just to drive down costs. Creativity has gone by the wayside. Um, and we have to have new currency. And, and Nielsen may ultimately be the provider of that new currency, but we need new currencies. What, what do you mean by currency? Mm -hmm. Well, the currency now for most media content is one way or another an impression. Right. I mean, you can argue about viewability, you can argue all these different parameters. So it's basically whether someone's, it's an impression. whether someone's seen it. Whether someone has been exposed right. to be able to see it or hear it or, or see it or read it. Um, and, and there's a lot of debate around the viewability issues, which are bull****. Um, <laughs> but that haven't been said. So what I've been trying to figure out is, all right, where's, if you look at technology and you look at the need for new business models and new currency, cost per thousand impressions or whatever data a marketer is currently using to value the media that they buy, and the vast majority of that 95 plus percent is fundamentally a, a cost per click, cost per impression, cost per thousand, whatever that may be. And those are, you know, 50, 60 year old currency models. Hmm. So what I look at is what I'm calling it emotion tech. And I think it's a breakthrough concept, uh, which basically puts the smartwatch and the Fitbit technologies together hmm. in one, which they, they will are and will be more and more, where you're actually going to be capturing on a second-by-second -second basis, your galvanic response, your heart rate, your your pulse, your emotional your your emotional state, your physical state, and there's a lot of re uh, research already done that connects your physical state, your your responses to your emotions, and then also your emotions to your um, how open you are to an advertising message, how likely you are to make a decision, how. Uh, how you're most likely to feel when you're, uh, you know, in certain media environments, when you're watching certain TV shows. We're going to be able to be, all that data that's now going to be on your wrist and on your ankle and in the necklace that you're wearing or whatever is going to be going up to the cloud. Mm -hmm. Once it's in the cloud, it's going to be combined with your credit card purchase behavior. 
your social media behavior, your geographic location, your set-top box data. So you're now going to be factoring your emotional response in with your all the other data that's already up in the marketing and data clouds, Oracle, Adobe, and others, you know, Google, um, constantly having access to your uh, to how you're feeling in connection to how you're acting and your behavior. Put those two together, and this is going to take a f number of years. But again, where it's going. So if I'm investing in research today, if I'm a marketer, if I'm a media company. I'm going to start investing in neuroscience and understanding the connection between your emotions and the content that I'm providing you and how I can create content that creates the best environment for an advertiser to associate themselves with. And I think that leads us to where this process where once you have all this data that says this program is the best place to put your ad your commercial or your message or your sponsorship or association, you're going to be paying high premiums to be associated because you're going to want to own it. You're going to want to be part of it. You're going to want to carry your message through all the platforms for a sustainable period of time. It's like sports. Mm -hmm. Like if you're a, a sponsor of, um, of soccer, if you're a sponsor of the New York Yankees, you're associating with the passions that people have toward that those teams and those sports and you want that association uh, and you want it sustainable and you want to do your promotions not just your advertising in association with those with those passions we'll be able to get a better measure of that across more media content so what we'll actually be measuring rather than CPM is something like CPE so rather than cost per exposure it's cost per emotional engagement Something along those lines. That's exactly right. Now, again, we were a long way away, but again, most of the media companies are putting a lot, uh, spending a lot more money on data and information mm. than ever before. The budgets are, are going up exponentially, but all of these investments are being received in the advertising and marketing community as shiny new objects. Thank you for bringing this to us. We're going to use it. You know, we'll, we'll, but next year bring us something else new. So it's not scalable, it's not sustainable. So I think a lot of the providers of, of these new database tools are going to find themselves not having scalable businesses. Right. But you can see the edges of where some of the big players are thinking about this. I mean, I, Facebook comes to mind because not only do they increasingly ask people to express not just what they're doing, but how they're feeling. And they did that famous experiment where they ran you know, good versus bad news stories to see whether people's yeah. engagement was different based on their on the kinds of stories they're exposed to. So, so I'm, I'm feeling like some of these big platforms that have the ability to run these kind of Skinner type experiments are doing it. Doing it, and Facebook's at the forefront. Facebook really, um, of all media companies that I I believe their um, their ad sales teams are are really capitalizing in in positive ways at taking the resources they have mm -hmm. and, and really creating an underpinning for being able to create more value as opposed to more inventory. Let's change tack a little. Your last book, uh, Hooked Up, uh, was about the next generation and millennials. Uh, this is a subject I know when I'm speaking to audiences is, is one of perennial interest because everyone's trying to work out not just how the next generation of customers but their employees, their partners, 
how they think, you know, what's going on in their mind. So for you, what were some of the, the big takeaways from your research? You know, how are the millennials different and, and what is it going to take to engage them? Uh, so that book came out a little more than four years ago uh, and it, it, it's, it discards or dispels the notion that there's a single millennial cohort. Right. And when, I, when the book was published, we weren't talking about millennials the way we are now. And, and my first premise was that this whole idea of a, of a millennial cohort is misguided because you can't take a 16-year-old and a 35-year-old and say they have anything <laughs> in common. And the research that I did showed that there were, in fact, three groups within the, the millennials, the pre-internet, the post-internet, and then my book was about this bridge generation that's right in the middle that uh, is bridges the gap between the pre- and post-internet and has the, the qualities, sensitivities, sensibilities of the pre-internet more traditional millennial who we know is entitled and all the you know <laughs> descriptions and then the post internet millennials who are growing up not believing they're going to be more successful financially than their parents they're growing up in a very different zeitgeist around uh, gender neutrality uh, around equality uh, they're operating online where people are being measured by completely different criteria than when you're sitting face to face looking at, at someone. Uh, and the biggest shift of that this young generation who's now you know, born 91 to 95 roughly in, in their early 20s right now, this bridge generation, uh, are the first generation to be clearly and visibly dominated by females hmm. and where there is a huge shift taking place in male-female relationships. So in the U.S. and, and in several countries around the world, uh, the vast majority of, of job growth is going to women. So 60% uh, of college graduates in, in most Western countries and, and almost all countries around the world. Um, 60% of college graduates are female, 65% of grad students. The number of females in the professional schools and, and the MBA programs is growing exponentially. Uh, 13 of the top 15 growth industries are dominated in junior and middle management by women. Among young women, the salaries are outpacing the salaries of young men, so there's income disparity, but it favors female among younger women. These trends, as they continue, uh, are having a huge impact on uh, men's, young men's psyche right. and their sense of self. And there's a huge amount of conflict and uh, challenge with this generation uh, in terms of relationships, in terms of, of job, job stature, in terms of role. There's a conflict because men, young men have been fed this narrative about what a real man is from old media, advertising, beer commercials, where Marlboro you're either man. <laughs> Marlboro man, you know, where, and in beer commercials, you're either um, a misogynist, you know, who's, who's only, you know, who's, where your cohort is other men and, and where women are only, beautiful women only are there to serve you and your needs. Preferably uh, a beer. A beer. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> that, a particular beer and a very cold beer that's, you know, coming where the woman has scaled polar ice caps in order to deliver it to you. Um, uh, or you're an idiot. What's up? 
you know, <laughs> or you, you can't pick your own analgesic or figure out how to wipe, <laughs> use a paper towel to wipe up a spill. Um, and, and you're also fed the, uh, uh, you know, the most iconic TV dad of the last two decades has been uh, Homer Simpson, Peter Griffin from Family Guy. So the narrative of what is a man is, is very confusing and complicated. And then you get into, you know, graduating from college or coming out of high school into your, you know, into your grown-up uh, life, your, uh, you know, adult reality. And you're confronting, you don't have the traditional power base of, of regulatory power or financial power or physical power. 40% of two-parent homes are led by women today in the U.S. Uh, financially. Uh, there are more and more stay-at-home dads, but whereas a woman who, uh, ha when she has a child or makes a major life change, has an incredible cohort group that has that in structure of support that's been set up, a man, uh, stay-at-home dad, doesn't have that cohort group. In fact, he may be ridiculed by right. his male friends or questioned. So his masculinity is being challenged as opposed to being reinforced and supported. We have conflict after conflict after conflict that's cultural, societal, business, and so that led me to the next book about the future of men, and that's where it's, I'm it's a great title. Today. And I guess the implied question is: Is there one? <laughs> you know, it, it's, it's a funny question because when if I've been working on this now for three years, so as I've been doing my, you know, just talking to people, and I'll mention to uh, to women, I'm writing a book about the future of men, and there's engagement, there's instant, they're interested, they're, they want to talk about it, they, they want to relate, they relate to it. I mentioned to men, I'm writing a book about the future of men, 80% of men will say, you mean we have a future? <laughs> <laughs> there's a tremendous amount of resignation that, um, uh, you know, our world is changing, but no one is talking to the younger men yeah. about, yes, you are coming into a very changed world where the old boy network doesn't work anymore, but yet when you get your first job, the first thing the older guy does is take you, you know, let's go out, let's, I'll take you out to the strip club, you know. You can't mm. do that anymore. It doesn't work anymore. They're, the old boy network is collapsing. You go into a, you know, if you can find an all-men's club, you go in and it's the guys with the oxygen tanks attached to the, you know, <laughs> they're coming in and, and you know, that they're, but yet there's a lot of all women organizations and groups. People would argue that this is just a much needed equilibrium rebalancing. I mean, after years of, uh, you know, discriminatory, Decades, centuries. yeah, <laughs> centuries of discrimination that things are just rebalancing now to a more normal state. Well, normal is a is a heavily loaded word. I, I don't think there is a normal that we're, nor do I think there's a rebalancing. Um, uh, I, I think it's it's. You think it's a redefinition? It's a, it's, it's a redefinition. It's a it's a uh, yes. It's much needed. The all the patterns are positive patterns in a lot of ways. There's a lot of evidence that this is good for business. That this is good for relationships. Uh, that this is, but that doesn't mean that the young men who are coming into their adult years and have to deal in this side are, are prepared for right. it and understand it, or that anyone is talking to them about here's what you, you're you're okay, 
it's okay to be conflicted. It's okay not to, you know, have a, have clarity. It's not. It's okay to be confused about if you're a young guy. Do you pay for a date? Do you not pay for a date? Do you open a door for her? Do you not open a door for her? Do you throw her up against the wall and, you know, and kiss her? Um, and where you're being told, don't even think about going there, but yet. <laughs> you still this need is, to. This is not just an existential question, though, for young guys. I mean, brands are, are, are struggling with this as well. If you're a, a Unilever or a Procter & Gamble, you're trying to work out how do we define 21st century masculinity to sell more deodorant. <laughs> and, and it's a great topic because we're, we're seeing uh, brands like Axe, which has been all about empowering young men to be you know, aggressive, alpha, sexual beings who only have to put on the right deodorant and women are going to be swarming around them, uh, are, are radically changing their approach to their messaging to, yeah. to really look at this, this future. Dove for men being, you know, just as Dove for women has been more sensitive and outreaching to a broader spectrum of women, making them feel okay for themselves. Dove for men is really doing the same thing in that they're they're communicating through their brand messaging. It's it's okay. We understand. We feel with you. So that they're embracing you. the ambiguity rather than trying to define it. Yes, and and they're, they're, that's a great actually. That's a great concept that they're embracing the ambiguity. This is different though to the '90s because I remember in the '90s, Calvin Klein won. It was all about just not having. It was the same product for both sexes. Yeah. Uh, and, and it was that's actually a point I make in the book using Calvin Klein as, as the yeah. example but where, this is not that there's, there's equal objectification of men and women <laughs> and what we're seeing in a lot of advertising today the VW commercials are on right now where it's a group of three senior citizen women you know clearly in their 70s generously are objectifying this young male sales uh, you know car salesman and if flip that and make that bunch of older men objectifying a young, you know, attractive woman, it'd be horrible, you know, and not <laughs> on the air. But we're accepting it, the objectification of, of men. Um, both are wrong. And, and it's appropriate that we're no longer accepting it for women. We really can't accept it for men either. And, and, and yet society, culture, business, advertising, marketing are accepting the objectification, the dumbing down of men, uh, while at the same time rejecting the objectification and the dumbing down of women. And that's because women have been really good at standing up for themselves and making a case for, we have a place, we are not going to accept this, this is not who we are, Men are begin are actually taking in this message, saying maybe that is who we are. You know, maybe we all are are all about you know how we look and whether we have a six pack and you know good abs and you know muscles and a nice <laughs> tattoo that we can show under our you know cut off t shirt. And um, and and they're they're really conflicted and confused by those those images, while at the same time being told be more empathetic, be more sensitive, be more collaborative, be more. Uh, engaged and involved, be more vulnerable, be more emotional. Well, no one has taught a lot of young men how to do that because they've grown up being told, you know, be a man, you know, be a real man. Real men don't cry, you know, be uh, strong, you know, and 
you put up a barrier. Don't let your emotions <laughs> be seen. And God forbid you should cry. Oh my God, you know, then you'll be. Well, I've, I've got to say, Jack, you, you've certainly made me more conflicted about my future as a man. But I know I'm going to be. I know I'm going to be feeling much better soon because we're going to go see a Yankees game. Exactly. We're, we're, and you'll be surprised by how many women are at the Yankees game. Jack, it's been a great pleasure to see you again and have you on the show. Time went fast. Thanks very much. You've been listening to Between Worlds. For more episodes and information on how to subscribe to our podcast, please visit www.mike-walsh.com slash between worlds.